Welcome to Women's HealthCast, a podcast from the University of Wisconsin Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. I'm Jackie Askins. With this podcast, I'll be exploring issues and innovations around women's health with a little help from experts in the UW Department of OBGYN. There's a lot to consider when choosing the right birth control. What will work with your lifestyle? What are your goals? Are there other health issues you should consider before choosing a method? And many, many more questions. To help find some answers, I talked to Eliza Bennett. Dr. Bennett is an OBGYN and expert in family planning in our Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology here at the UW-Madison. In part one of this two-episode series, we discussed why people decide to use birth control, the basics of how hormonal and non-hormonal contraceptives work, and how she helps patients choose the right methods for them. Dr. Bennett also entertained all of my questions about the pill, including some scenarios that are totally hypothetical and never happened to me, I swear. So I'm very excited to sit down and talk with Dr. Eliza Bennett today about um, birth control, all of the birth controls. Um, so before we get started into some more specific questions, I'd like to learn a little bit about you and your background. So I am originally from Kansas. Um, I grew up uh, outside of a small town on an organic farm. Um, and uh, then I, I went to the University of Kansas for both my undergraduate degree and my um, medical school. Um, following medical school, I came to the University of Wisconsin for residency. Um, after completion of residency, I stayed here and joined the faculty. And I've been on the faculty as a generalist OBGYN. Um, since uh, 2010. Why did you want to become a doctor? Um, I, <laughs> I always wanted to become a doctor. My mother recently uncovered a um, little essay I had written when I was in second grade that talks about how I was going to become a doctor. Um, I think uh, my dad worked at the hospital as the plant engineer, and so I had a lot of exposure to the physicians. I'd go with him to work every now and then, and um, I was always interested in what the doctors were doing, and um, you know, on the farm, I was interested in uh, things like, you know, how the bodies worked and how our animals functioned. I remember loving when we would have um, baby sheep or baby goats. I would go out with my mom and dad and watch them be born, and um, all of that just fascinated me. Um, and I always liked science, um, and so I think it was just a natural uh, sort of progression that, that I, w I would become a physician and, and specifically be an OBGYN. So why OBGYN? Um, I remember, so I went into medical school thinking maybe I'll do primary care, um, and then a little ways in I thought, oh, maybe infectious disease. I was very interested in uh, microbiology um, and um, sort of uh, tropical medicine and that kind of thing. Um, and then as I got into my clerkships, I remember being on my um, OBGYN rotation and I was on labor and delivery. And I remember just thinking, this is it. I love this. I loved labor and delivery. I loved the surgical aspects. I really liked taking care of women. Um, I liked the sort of uh, a little bit gnarly ethical sort of dilemmas that come with um, reproductive health. Um, and I just felt like I'd found my home and the thing that I wanted to do for the rest of my life. So when I started thinking about um, this episode, I really 
um, I know personally I have like a ton of questions about how how birth control works and how somebody arrives at the choice that's sort of right for them. Um, and you were the first person who popped into my head, like, I want to talk to Eliza about this so badly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I have so many questions. Like, <laughs> we are just going to cover so much ground. Uh, but to kind of start out, what um, what are some of the reasons that somebody might seek out a birth control option? So the most common reason is because they don't want to get pregnant, um, but they want to be able to have sex. <laughs> um, and so, so that, that is um, the most frequent reason why, why someone will access birth control. But and other reasons are that their periods are heavy or they have pain with their periods um, or they are, I mean, I get people that just don't want to have a period. They're involved in sports or they're um, involved in a job where they, that, that's inconvenient to them or, or it would really um, diminish their ability to, to participate in those activities. So those are all reasons why people will come seeking contraception. Are periods medically necessary? Periods are not medically necessary. It is abnormal for a woman to not have a period if she's not on a hormonal medication that is suppressing menstruation. However, if a woman is taking a medication that effectively suppresses menstruation, she doesn't build up a uterine lining and thus does not need to have a period. That's great to know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I think I think for a long time um, the the belief has been that that you need to have a menstrual cycle to be healthy. Um, but actually, when we look back at the history of contraception, um, in the 1950s, when contraception was being developed by um, uh, 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 Goody Pincus and John Rock who were the two initial developers of it, they felt like if they could mimic a natural cycle, especially John Rock felt like that mimicking a natural cycle was really important for women's acceptance because he felt like women that stopped having menstrual cycles felt uncomfortable and felt like like something was going on in their body that was unnatural or unhealthy. And so when the birth control pill was designed, it was designed with that in mind. So it's that historical reference that has resulted in the pill formulations that we have today um, that maintain that menstrual cycle, even though it's a false cycle. It's only induced because of the withdrawal of progesterone. It isn't because of the natural cycle of hormones that occurs when people are not using contraception. So you just said um, the withdraw- withdrawal of progesterone, and um, I feel like maybe it's worth taking a step back and talking mm-hmm. about how hormonal contraceptives even work in the body, um, so especially let's <clears throat> go with like the combined oral contraceptives. So the combined oral contraceptives are the things that people are most familiar with. It's the most commonly used form of hormonal contraception um, in the U.S. Um, and basically combined hormonal contraceptions um, have some type of progesterone and estrogen, um, and those medications work on the ovary um, and the brain uh, to suppress ovulation. Um, And by blocking ovulation, the production of an egg, um, they uh, prevent pregnancy. 
and they they sort of work um, to downregulate the signals from the brain that that tell the ovary to produce an egg. Um, and those hormones also, the estrogen and progesterone sort of work together to build up a small amount of lining in the uterus. And that's why when women um, use a combined hormonal contraceptive pill that's in the usual formulation, which is 21 days of active pills and then seven days of inactive pills, during that seven-day period of inactive pills where they're not um, having any exogenous hormone or hormone from the outside coming in, the small amount of lining that is built up um, within the uterus will slough off because that um, progesterone is no longer there. And that withdrawal of progesterone is the signal um, to the body to get rid of the lining that's inside of the uterus. So you said the combined oral contraceptive is probably the one people are most familiar with. Mm -hmm. is very common. What are some mm -hmm. of the other commonly used types of birth control? So um, Depo-Provera, which is an in injectable medication um, uh, called De Depo-Medroxyprogesterone acetate. And basically, it's a um, sustained-release um, injectable progestin. Um, that progestin works to suppress ovulation, just like combined hormonal pills. Um, and the sustained release formu formulation means that it is slowly sort of um, absorbed through the body over three months um, and suppresses that ovulatory function. Um, and then every three months, people have to get another injection um, to maintain the contraceptive effect. Um, and uh, so it works in a, in a similar way because it's an ovulatory suppression. Uh, Depo-Provera sometimes has a side effect of irregular bleeding because it doesn't have that very regular withdrawal of hormone. Um, other forms would be the Nexplanon, and Nexplanon is an implantable contraceptive device. Um, it has um, etonergesterol in it, which is another type of progestin. Um, it is uh, placed underneath the skin in the um, upper arm and lasts for three years, um, slowly, slowly releasing a small amount of um, progestin systemically um, in a continuous fashion for that three years. It's actually the most effective form of contraceptive. Um, it has a, the very lowest failure rate of any birth control that we have um, with a, about 0.15 women per um, 100 women years uh, uh, conceiving a pregnancy while using the Nexplanon. It works in a similar fashion to combined pills and to um, injectables um, in that it suppresses ovulation. So that continuous presence of progestin um, stops the ovary from producing eggs. Um, it probably also has an effect on cervical mucus, thickening cervical mucus, which may, uh, makes it so that sperm has a hard time um, getting into the uterus. Um, finally, we have the levonorgestrel um, intrauterine device, and those are a different form of hormonal contraceptives in that they um, are an intrauterine device with a small um, sleeve that contains a sustain-release um, progestin. Um, the majority of women that are using levonorgestrel intrauterine devices will have normal ovulatory function, so their ovaries work just like they work without um, the, the IUD in place. 
Um, what that progestin does is it thins the lining of the uterus. Um, so many women that are using a levonorgestrel IUD um, won't have any period because of that thinning um, and uh, effect of the progestin on the uterine lining. But its primary mechanism of action to prevent pregnancy is most likely on the cervical mucus um, because sperm can't, can't transit through that very thick progestin-affected cervical mucus. Um, the, uh, it prevents uh, fertilization. Um, and it is also an extremely effective form of birth control with um, the pregnancy rate of about 0.2 per 100 women years for women. Um, for women that are using the levonorgestrel devices. So they're very effective. There is another intrauterine device that is non-hormonal, correct? Right, right. So um, copper IUDs, or the Paragard IUD is the trade name of, that, of the copper device that's available in the U.S., uses copper to prevent pregnancy. And um, copper basically has a, if, if you think about um, copper's use in other forms, it's used um, in gardening around, um, people will often use um, copper containing um, agents around tomato plants to prevent um, fungal infections in, in tomatoes. Um, and so I, I often think of sperm as sort of the equivalent. <laughs> um, the copper has a negative effect on sperm and sort of deactivates them. And so as sperm would enter the uterus, um, the, the um, inflammatory changes um, and the direct effects of the copper um, prevent them from fertilizing um, eggs. So what are some of the most common questions that you get from people who come to see you about contraception? So I think one of the one of the or the two big things that people worry about with contraception is is it going to affect my future fertility, um, and what are the side effects? Um, side effects are probably the biggest reason for people discontinuing um, contraceptive methods. Um, the most annoying side effect for people is um, abnormal bleeding patterns. And many women have different problems with different contraceptives, and um, oftentimes there is little ability to predict what effects a specific form of contraception will have on somebody's bleeding pattern until we actually do sort of a trial and error, try it, see how people adjust, and um, if it doesn't go well, we try a different method. Are um, people coming in with a lot of, like, misconceptions or misunderstandings about um, particular methods or about how birth control works in general? I think there's a lot of misconceptions out there um, about birth control in general. Um, I think a lot of people um, perceive contraception to be more dangerous than it is or to have more negative side effects or risks um, than it does. Um, in general, contraception is very, very safe. Um, and uh, pregnancy is almost always higher risk, so a higher risk of complications than any form of contraception that we have. Well, what are some of the risks with um, long-term use of contraceptives, if, if there are any? Um, so th there are, are, for specific contraception methods, there are some risks, but in general, long-term use doesn't increase those risks. The one thing, most recently, there was a study published um, from uh, uh, Denmark 
um, about um, the risk of breast cancer in women that are using hormonal contraception. And this is a longstanding sort of debate that's gone on in the contraceptive community about how significant this risk is. And one of the things we know about breast cancer is that it is often hormonally responsive. So many women um, that get breast cancer will have estrogen or progesterone receptor positive breast cancers. And hormonal contraceptives um, contain often estrogens or progestins. Um, so this uh, Danish study was looking back at a cohort of women that were using um, uh, hormonal contraception for long periods of time and sort of looked at what their risk of breast cancer was. And now um, the, a the ages in which women use contraception, um, their overall risk of breast cancer is very low. So the likelihood of getting breast cancer in a woman that's between 15 and 45 is really low compared to women that are after the age of 50. Um, so the overall risk of breast cancer is very low, but we did see a slight increase in the risk of breast cancer in, in those women. But I think it's important to put that in the context of the overall low risk. So, so what we see is that women using hormonal contraceptives have um, a relative risk of 1.2 um, in terms of, of having breast cancer. But the overall risk is about 13 more women in 100,000 will get breast cancer. So that is a very, very, very small increase in the risk. So yes, there is some risk, but the overall risk is so low that in general, long-term use of hormonal contraception is still um, appropriate. And especially when we balance it, looking at what the other risks are. So specifically in the United States, when we look at the other risks, we look at the risk of maternal mortality, which is about 26 per 100,000 women. So it's twice the risk of dying from a pregnancy than from uh, the increase in getting breast cancer. Um, so overall, um, hormonal contraception, contraception is really life-saving um, in that context. What about uh, clotting disorders or blood clotting issues? So clotting disorders um, are specifically associated with estrogen-containing birth control um, for the most part. Um, there are a subset of women who are probably at an increased risk because of um, genetic risk factors. Um, and then also those women who have um, sort of health risk factors such as obesity or smoking. So the estrogen-containing uh, birth controls are the combined hormonal con contraception, which um, is most traditional um, uh, birth control pills plus the um, NuvaRing and the uh, contraceptive patch. Um, the risk does not increase over time in getting a blood clot from those. So it's sort of as a steady state increased risk, and it's a pretty small increase um, in, in the overall risk of getting a blood clot, maybe four to six per 100,000 women. What is a safe age to start using contraceptives? Um, the time to start using contraceptives is when they're needed. So it is fine um, for um, young women to start using contraceptives when they become sexually active. Um, uh, as I've said, pregnancy is higher risk than, than any form of contraceptive that we have. And so I usually counsel adolescents that they should initiate contraceptive use prior to initiating um, sexual intercourse. 
Um, obviously, in young women, we have a little bit higher risk of uh, STD. Um, they tend to engage in more risky um, sexual behaviors. And so there's always an emphasis on using um, barrier method con uh, contraception, um, such as condoms, to reduce the risk of STD um, concurrently with highly effective um, forms of contraception to reduce the risk of pregnancy. How do you help your patients choose the methods that are right for them? So we'll say I'm... Um, I'm visiting you for the first time. I know that I want to start using birth control, but I don't know anything about it, and I don't know what's going to work for me. How do you help me narrow down uh, a good fit for my life? So I think it's really important to focus on patient goals. Um, efficacy is usually really important to women, so they want a contraception that will work, that, that is not going to have a high failure rate. Um, but then identifying other things that um, influence uh, their particular uh, feelings about contraception. So some women um, having a regular period is very important to them. Other women have very painful periods or heavy periods and would, would like to um, treat that as well. Other women feel very uncomfortable with having something um, implanted or embedded into the body. Um, and so I think it's really important to have a conversation about goals and things people feel uncomfortable with or, or um, feel more comfortable with and tailor that contraceptive choice based on those goals and preferences that a particular patient has. And I think one of the really great things about contraception now is that we have a huge range of choices. So there's almost always a right choice for every woman. Um, and then even if a choice is made and it has side effects that are undesirable um, or just doesn't work for her lifestyle, there's the option to switch. It's not like someone is married to their particular contraceptive choice for the rest of their life. They get to, to make changes as their life changes. So what are some of the questions you would like people to think about before they go in for that initial counseling of like things about their own lives or their own lifestyles that um, should matter to them? What can, how could I start mentally preparing myself for that conversation with my doctor? So I think it's really important to think about the um, timeliness of dosing. So I think one of the big struggles that people have um, with any medication regimen is remembering to use it um, and having an awareness, a self-awareness about one's own ability to adhere to a medication regimen um, and how that's going to work in their life. So I think I think that's a really important thing um, to think about. Another important thing uh, is is to think about um, what the future reproductive goals are. So some women need contraception, but they're planning a pregnancy in months versus other women women who need contraception and don't want a pregnancy um, in for the next number of years or maybe even ever. So, so those two women have very different goals and very different needs. So I think that that's a really important thing um, to consider. And then I think side effects, like knowing that everything has side effects and prioritizing what's important for you and what will have a negative or positive impact on your particular life um, is, is really important um, in choosing the right method um, for oneself. Is there anything else that you'd want people to know about how to choose the right method for them? 
Well, I think the other thing, I mean, the, where, where your physician comes in or where your provider comes in is looking at all of the other health parameters that are going on. So for some women, they have health issues where certain things are just not appropriate choices for them. They carry too much risk or um, they won't be as effective. Um, and so, you know, being honest and forth, forthright with all of your sort of past medical history um, is really important so that that your provider can um, sort of shine a light on on what are better choices and worse choices um, for your particular health situation. I wanted to spend a little time um, asking some specific questions about specific methods of birth control. Um, and because you mentioned that uh, sort of the combined pill or oral contraceptives tend to be um, the most common or the ones people are most familiar with, we can start there. Mm-hmm. So you provided an overview before about how uh, hormonal pills work. Um, can you just summarize that again for us? So hormonal pills, and I will include um, the patch in the ring uh, with the um, hormonal pills and Um, So when we talk about them, we'll talk about combined hormonal contraceptives. And these are contraceptives with estrogen and progesterone in them. They work by suppressing suppressing ovulation. Um, And they work both directly on the ovary and on the um, sort of ovarian brain feedback loop to um, suppress that ovulatory function. So some specific questions. so let's say someone's in the habit of taking their pill at, you know, 6.30 every morning when they wake up, except maybe Saturdays roll around and waking up at 6.30, not that appealing. So the pill maybe gets taken at 8 or 9 or realistically 10 a.m., depending how that person's weekend is going. Um, and then that person experiences bleeding. Is that something to be concerned about? What's happening there? So different women will be um, more or less sensitive with the uh, um, timing of their um, pill dosage. In general, we recommend being as consistent as possible um, because it improves the efficacy of the pill. Um, but uh, for a combined hormonal um, contraceptive, the half-life is relatively long, and so uh, one to two to three-hour difference in the dosage um, generally does not make a, a large difference in the efficacy. However, some people will experience some spotting or bleeding um, because of the dip in the hormonal level. Um, that's not necessarily concerning. It doesn't mean that there's a pathology, especially if it has a consistent pattern where people see that they'll have spotting when they're a little bit late taking their pill on a consistent basis, then um, uh, it could be attributable entirely to to that. Obviously, irregular bleeding that comes out of nowhere is something that we would want to um, have someone see their physician or their provider for. Um, But a a predictable um, spotting after missing a pill or after delayed taking of a pill um, is a... um, sort of expected side effect. What about um, smoking, like tobacco use while using the combined hormonal contraceptives? What do people need to know about that? So the use of tobacco um, with combined hormonal contraceptives is um, uh, recommended against because um, uh, tobacco use increases the risk of getting a blood clot in any woman, even women that that are not using um, 
combined hormonal contraceptives. Um, but co- because combined hormonal contraceptives also increase, increase the um, clotting risk, they have sort of a uh, combined significant increase in risk. The other thing that increases the risk of getting a blood clot is age. So in general, it is recommended that if a woman is over 35 and is a smoker, um, that they avoid using an estrogen containing or a combined hormonal contraceptive because um, the clotting risk significantly increases um, after that age of, of 35. What about a non-smoker past the age of 35? I guess is there... Um an age at which at which someone should start thinking about transitioning off of using the pill? So not necessarily. In a healthy woman with no contraindications, and those contraindications would include things like migraine with aura or hypertension, which do um, tend to happen with increasing frequency as people age. Um, but if they don't develop any of the, of the issues that cause us to not want them to take combined pills, they don't need to transition off until the age of menopause. Does the pill have a role in managing menopause symptoms at all? Yes. So oftentimes I'll see people, um, I'll have patients that stay on their birth control pill until the age of 51 or 52. Um, Then we usually do a trial off of the pill to see if their menstrual cycle um, has um, uh, ceased. Uh, If their menstrual cycle has ceased, then they can go off the pill, and that is when I will often see them um, exhibit symptoms of menopause, like vasomotor symptoms, hot flashes, night sweats, that sort of thing. Um, oftentimes, if they have those symptoms and they're significant enough that they want treatment, I will then put them on hormone replacement therapy because it's a, a, a little bit lower dose of um, of hormonal medication. Um, the low dose often treats those symptoms without having the, the risks associated um, with the higher dose of, of combined pills. How, um, how do birth control pills and antidepressants work together? What do you know about that? So um, for the most part, um, birth control pills and, and antidepressants are um, safe to take in coordination. Um, medications that increase the metabolism of certain enzymes in the liver um, carry some risk. Um, St. John's word is one of of the medications that um, can increase the liver metabolization of um, steroid hormones or the the hormones that are in birth control pills. So that is one of the things, especially since St. John's wort is sort of a uh, herbal medication that isn't, um, because it's not a pharmaceutical, it's not regulated, and the dosage amounts can be more unpredictable. So we do warn against using that with um, hormonal contraceptives. But the sort of more regulated um, SSRIs like Zoloft or Prozac or those sort of standard sorts of things um, are, are fine to take uh, in conjunction with hormonal contraceptives. Are there any other uh, questions or concerns or um, things that people should know about how combined hormonal birth control works Well, one of the things that I really like to caution people about um, 
combined hormonal birth control is very effective, um, but it is not as effective as some of the other methods, like the long-acting methods. Um, and so I like people that are taking it to be cognizant of what improves the efficacy, what makes it work better. Um, and a few things that, that really make it a more effective form of contraception is having a system um, to remind oneself to to take their pills on a regular basis and in a timely fashion. And so I always recommend when somebody starts on that that they use something like a timer or a telephone alarm or something like that to give them that trigger um, to remember to take their pills. Um, the other thing that I think is important to know is that the um, traditional formulations that have a um, seven-day break in the active pills um, mean that the it is extremely important to start the next pill pack um, on a on a uh, very effectively at the end of that seven days um, because that's sort of the longest duration um, uh, that you can have without inducing an escape ovulation um, so if people miss starting their pill pack um, when they're supposed to start it at, on that, you know, sort of day after their placebo week, um, they're at a, a higher risk of having a pregnancy or a contraceptive failure. Um, one of the ways um, that that I like to um, help people to reduce that risk is by putting them on a, a non-standard formulation. And we have some newer formulations that um, have much shorter placebos. Um, and there's some other benefits to that. The shorter placebo window decreases the amount of bleeding that people have. When we look at some research um, on the placebo window and what the best placebo window is, it's probably more like two to four days instead of that seven-day window that was previously established. And as I said, that was established mostly based on um, the original researchers desire to replicate a natural cycle. Um, so a, one of the newer formulations that has a short placebo win window would be Yaz. Um, it has um, four days of, of inactive pills instead of seven. Um, and that way there's a reduced risk of escape ovulation or of, of that um, ovary producing an egg. Um, and so I, I just think that those those are the sort of big deal things to pay attention to um, uh, to really effectively prevent pregnancy. And you mentioned before the placebo window is sort of not necessary, actually. Yeah. So uh, other you know sort of innovations and formulations that have happened in the last ten to twenty years is the continuous um, oral contraceptive pills. Um, and there's a number of different um, brands that market, um, you know, many, many weeks of, of active pills with um, short windows of placebo. Um, and I think those are really nice for a lot of women because um, it can su suppress menstruation. And so they can go three and four months without having a period. Um, and really most formulations, especially if they're monophasic, so they only use one dose of estrogen and one dose of progesterone in every active pill, can be used in a continuous fashion. You don't have to purchase a special branded um, pill in order to do that. Um, and, and the 
sort of drawback of doing that is that some women will have a significant amount of irregular or unscheduled bleeding initially because it takes some time for the um, endometrium to thin, the lining of the uterus to thin um, and become sort of dormant. But once it becomes thin and dormant, most women stop having any bleeding at all. And I have patients that use continuous pills and never have a placebo week um, for years and years. It's especially effective for women that have um, significant pain with their period or endometriosis because it can really suppress the, that painful stimuli of having a menstrual cycle. Um, and the, the data on that would suggest that almost everybody after 12 months of continuous pill use um, will become amenorrheic or will stop having their period or any bleeding. I want to say a quick thank you to all the listeners and friends who shared their questions about contraception for these episodes. If I missed your question, don't worry. On the next episode of the Women's HealthCast, we'll be back with Dr. Bennett to learn about other types of birth control like the IUD, the implant, permanent options, and much more. Women's HealthCast is a production of the University of Wisconsin-Madison Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. This episode was produced and engineered by Rob Garza. You can subscribe to Women's HealthCast on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. And of course, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at WISC-OBGYN. Please let us know how we're doing. Rate and review us on your podcast app and let us know what women's health issues you would like to learn more about. Thanks for listening.